Precinct Podcast, Side Podcast. I have a guest with me to talk about something that is linked in the most tenuous way to the works of Ed McBain, and that is an episode of Star Trek from 1968 called Assignment Earth. So, I have got with me an old colleague, a very good friend, Mr Adam Paxman. Hello, Mr Adam Paxman. Hello, Paul. Would you describe yourself as an artist, Adam? Uh, illustrator, Paul. Illustrator. Okay. What's the difference? Uh, oh, that's well, that would be another side. That would be a side side podcast. Oh right. Yeah. So we'll um, leave that then. Yeah. Well, if you're interested in seeing some of Adam's illustrations, he has three particular strands of. Um, well, they're not narrative necessarily. All of them are they? But you've got Mister Paxman's Glorious Bastards. What's that about? Uh, that is about a parallel universe um, full of the uh, the scum of the earth, the most wretched human beings imaginable. Excellent. We have the Museum of Fragmented Shadows. Uh, which is a Victorian, um, absurd, humorous monster uh, science uh, installment, uh, also set in that parallel universe, but set in the Victorian period predominantly. And my personal favourite, we have Burning Zebra, the abandoned storybook. Yes, uh, anthropomorphic uh, characters running about uh, answering the big questions of life, the universe and everything. To, uh, to Have they actually answered any questions don't, yet? Don't, don't, don't <laughs> Adams. Um, 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 yeah, maybe. Possibly. Maybe not. Are there any answers out there? Are there any answers? We'll, we'll find out. Beyond me, mush. Read, read and, and enjoy. Okay, so all of those blog-type websites are online, aren't they, if you just mm-hmm. search for the names of them, and I'll put a link in the description for the podcast. But I've invited you on here for a very specific purpose, because you are, amongst the humans I know, one of the nerdiest of sci-fi fans. And when I decided I was going to look at this episode of Star Trek from 1968, as I mentioned before, you were the person that came to mind, as I knew you would, A know about the episode already mm-hmm. and B be willing to put in the groundwork to really help illustrate this illustrate it oh so, yes there so we that go was clever wasn't it um uh yes uh I was aware of Simon Earth um before you uh messaged me about it and I'm very happy to talk uh about uh Simon Earth as a Star Trek fan and also I do know a little bit about um some of the spin-offs and, and I've also freshened up uh my memory of of things of uh, of this type uh by doing a little bit of research making some notes uh, i don't know if you can hear me turning my That's the sound of notes. pages of, of research notes uh yes on gary seven and his uh his, his wacky uh adventures well i'll just outline the connections i think i have mentioned this before on the podcast we did for killer's payoff which was a few books ago in terms of our regular podcast the link to Ed McBain here is that the main character in this episode of Star Trek is played by Robert Lansing, who plays Steve Carella in the TV series 87th Precinct, which was in 1961-62. Fairly short-lived, really, only a small run of episodes. He is in this episode of Star Trek, which has a strange distinction of standing out on its own compared to many of them, I think, and could have been a whole new direction for sci-fi in the late 60s. 
So that's how we've got to this point and why we're doing the podcast. So, Assignment Earth, Star Trek Season 2, yeah. last F- episode. Final episode, that's right, yeah. It would have been the final episode of Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, except the letter writing campaign by two fans uh, in the late 60s uh, revived the show for the third season. Uh, Roddenberry was still, Gene Roddenberry was still involved in the third season, but um, far less so. And he was obviously already trying to get um, other pilots um, produced. And one of those was the show that this would have, this episode, Assignment Earth, would have been a backdoor pilot for. Um, so there, there is, um, swimming around online, there is an original uh, script for Assignment Earth as a show, as a pilot. Then there is um, a version of it, which is a Star Trek Assignment Earth episode. Yeah. Um, and, and I think when you watch the episode, uh, as you say, it's it does feel um, unusual as a Star Trek show because uh, Kirk and Spock and the rest of the Enterprise crew are very much sidelined for a, a majority of the episode. They certainly are. I think it's a fantastic episode for various reasons. I'm not entirely sure how well it's thought of in in terms of actual Trek fandom. It clearly captures the imagination of some fans who love it very, very much, enough to go and make a fantastic website dedicated to this single episode. If you want any of the resources to do with this episode, assignmentearth.ca is a website just about this. It's got everything on there you could possibly want. It's a researcher's dream. Yes, I did look at that uh, extensively this morning. Well, as extensively as one can in a morning. Uh, in preparation for this podcast, it, it, it really is uh, uh, very thorough. Um, but also just um, YouTubing Gary Seven uh, and Assignment Earth, I came across a fan film. Um, fan film? A fan film of Assignment Earth, which There's starts, quite a lot of uh, fan-made stuff to do with Star Trek, isn't there? There's something called yeah. Star Trek Continues. Yes, which, which is... I've yeah. never seen, but no, it's gonna, quite a good cast in it. Ironically, ending soon. The, the penultimate episode just came out a week or two ago. Uh, because they t- I think partly because they've tightened up the uh, rules, uh, the laws uh, to do with... Derivative um, works. And yes, yeah, and, and how fair use is, is used. Obviously, the, the Axonar legal uh, debate went on. Uh, well, it's still going on, I think, uh, last year and into this year. Yeah, so I don't know. So there's that's... a Gary Seven. There is a Gary Seven. There's a, an assignment Earth. Uh, well, just film, before yeah. we, we keep saying Gary Seven, like like everyone knows who we're talking about. So, yes, yeah, Robert Lansing's character yeah. in this is called Gary Seven. Yeah, Mister Seven. He's credited uh, on screen as Mister Seven, but then no one ever refers to him as that. He's called Gary Seven from the very beginning. Yeah. So what I was thinking is. When he gets beamed aboard the Enterprise at the start of the episode and introduces himself as Gary Seven, mm. no one blinks an eye that his surname is Seven, the word, not the number. He doesn't say, I am Unit Seven or Inspector Number Seven mm. or whatever it is. He says Gary Seven. So do people actually have the surname Seven in the real world? I think maybe with an R in it, like the river, the River Seven... But it's, it's Kenny, Kenny Seven. I can't think of Sandra any. Seven. I mean, Seven of Nine, but that was her. Those were numbers. That was her Christian name with, you know, the Christian Borg. Uh, <laughs> Christian <laughs> um, Yeah, with the, the, that was a designation. In Sounds numerical. like a tennis player. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, it's called Gary Seven, which it's a great name. It captures the imagination, but it must be a code name, surely, because mm. he's 
Yeah, one would assume so. Or, I mean, there's there's a lot of backstory that's alluded to. I'm going to say alluded to, but the episode is stuffed full of exposition, but mm. it's really weirdly mysterious exposition, um, which would have presumably been fleshed out in the show if, if it yeah. had been picked up. Um, so there's this whole thing about uh, Gary Seven's parents were taken thousands, 6,000 years ago, uh, to a, a hidden planet that's still hidden in the 23rd century of Kirk, Spark, and, and so on. And Gary Seven has been bred, especially, as like a perfect specimen of a, of a human to then be an agent for this this alien, this advanced alien race. It seems to me, and I made a note here, that the alien's plan, which is to take people away and train them for generations... Yes. If they can take them away... Yes. If they can beam them across thousands of light years... Yes. Why? Yeah, I don't I don't really see the point of any of it. According to information on the, the website you quoted before, um, Roddenberry had spoken to futurists about um, different ideas, and one of the, or several of the futurists said that this would be a way that an advanced species might infiltrate or try to guide human development, uh, you know, perhaps positively. I don't know if you want to get into, like, the Prime Directive. I don't know how much re- uh, casual... Um, podcast view, read listeners, readers, read, read, readers, read, viewers, read, readers, viewers, listeners would have uh, would know about the Prime Directive. So, General Order One in Starfleet uh, or the the uh, Federation is to do uh, to Zip not up your uniform. Is to, yes, is, is to not uh, interfere with uh, pre warp civilizations. So, this advanced alien race clearly doesn't have its own version of pri- the Prime Directive because Gary Seven's mission in the episode is to stop. Uh, a suborbital uh, nuclear platform from being deployed, which will bring about, well, will precipitate a situation in which World War Three happens. Yeah. Uh, so, so Gary Seven is very much a good guy in this episode, but it's but interesting. We don't know that, yeah, that, the, the, yeah, that the whole sort of drama of the piece comes from. Can Captain Kirk trust Gary Seven? Is he really? Operating with the best wishes, the best, the best uh, intentions, and, and uh, for for human beings or not, and that that's really the the crux of it. Can can he be trusted? Yeah, it, it runs basically for fifty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing yeah. we should mention is, of course, it's a time travel episode. Yeah, and in yeah. the first five seconds, yes. they basically go, "We've travelled back to the twentieth century." Because we just do it, yeah, like, casually. Uh, yeah, that's right. It isn't a routine thing in any other Star Trek. But in episode. this one, it is. Um, it's it's, literally, it's, that we've it, just used the technology. Yeah, we've used the faster than light breakaway factor, which they only ever use. I think I might be wrong, but they, they only ever use on screen once again uh, in Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home, uh, when they uh, they're on in a Klingon craft, and they, mm. it's the one with the whales that even people who don't watch Star Trek. No, the one with the Welsh. Um, but the, here, not the, the Welsh, the, not not the Welsh. They save the Welsh. Yeah. It would be a very different um, with reinforced glass. Although it is, cases. It, yeah, it does sound like more of a comedic setup, maybe less of a conservational theme. Um, but yeah, this uh, this breakaway factor uh, and and it being used purely for historical research. So the crew of the Enterprise going back in time to observe a critical point in history. Yeah. And it's that, as you say, it's not something that they've ever um, 
It's just been the seen casual wave. It's doing, just dealt with in like one yeah. line at the start of it. It's there. It's there because it's a setup to an episode. It um, it's, this is what always, always um, uh, intrigues me when when uh, Star Trek fans online pick apart the minutia of of, of Star Trek episodes mm-hmm. and, they, and and say things about the new show Discovery and stuff. A lot of stuff in the original series just you know is is referred to in different ways or in ways that's essentially just just for drama. Yeah. Yeah. And then people spend decades trying to retroactively fit it Make into, sense a, into yeah, a unified yeah. technology yeah. or a unified philosophy or whatever, when it's never really intended to be that way. That's right. But anyway, they're back on Earth in 1968. And what terrifies me is the situation they find themselves in is that the planet is apparently in 1968, which is when the episode was made and shown. Yes. The, the planet is surrounded by suborbital nuclear warheads. Yeah, now, which I'm, in itself is a little bit of science fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it hopefully isn't. Well, yeah, uh, Reagan-era uh, Star Wars platforms were, what, the 80s, mid-80s, yeah. and obviously that hadn't happened yet. And we still don't, as far as we know, we don't have uh, or- orbital nuclear, nuclear bombs platforms. Uh, yeah, so, so an interesting mix of what was then extremely contemporary current setting for a Star Trek episode, but also there is a little bit of uh, futurism or... Or, uh, or or speculative fiction, um, mm. uh, with, even within within the episode, uh, and and Spock even mentions uh, the the most significant um, events that will happen in in the year, uh, and this I think this took place. It was filmed in early '68, so you could, they couldn't obviously possibly know, but they mention some things that would likely obviously have happened in in a very very vague way. So uh, assassination is mentioned, and I think. Um, uh, Teddy Kennedy and um, uh, Martin Luther King were both, I think, 68. Yeah. Um, so so it's quite prescient, um, but it also does that just mean that if, as a writer, you know, if you, you, you know, at that point um, with civil rights and so on, it, the tensions in America, uh, it was maybe quite a sort of safe, well, safe guess. Well, I think almost. even five years later, you've off the back of the uh, uh, JFK assassination... Mm. And the Cuban Missile Crisis occurring. This is all stuff that's in the air. And a lot of this is about the hippie viewpoint as well, to some extent. Because the second main character in this is called Roberta Lincoln. Mm. And although she's doing the square job of being a typist in this random office that she doesn't really know why she's there, (laughs) she's sort of the hippie voice, isn't she? She is. In this. She is. She's played by Terry Garr, who... Clearly had a horrible time making this and has never spoken about it since. Gives it a brief mention in her autobiography. You know, looking fab gear in some 60s outfit. I think she's brilliant in this. That's one of the sad things is that she had a horrible time making it and we don't really know why. But I think she's an excellent member of the cast. And and the way she, she plays her character who's just suddenly thrust into a world of beaming aliens and magical computers... Yeah, there's there's, really there's a nice um, there is a sort of charming innocence to the character and and how she reacts to things like a yeah a typewriter that that types that's speech dictated, uh, automated. Um, she gets to you know big shout out. She gets to call Captain Kirk a, a big jerk, uh, <laughs> and she 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 sums up that He's quite a big jerk. That, a lot of the time, isn't um, it? He, he she sums up. Uh, the, the 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 sort of hippie aspects that you mentioned like she says we're kind of that's why we're kind of crazy and rebels we want to know if we'll be alive at 30 you know 
And so it, it is this kind of it's the nuclear fear, isn't difficult it? time, yeah, in in, uh, in in Earth's history. But yeah, she's she's very charming um, in in what's initially set up as in a, in a really odd way. Of, of, as you say, she's a secretary, but she doesn't know who she works for or why she's there. Uh, it, it's a bit strange. Yeah, so we don't we don't meet her though until we've had until Gary Seven's turned up on the Enterprise and they've accidentally intercepted a beam that's being shot at Earth to send him there, and he turns up with a cat and a cat yes. called Isis. The cat, yes, I knew this would come up. The cat is called Isis, so uh, if it was an episode of Downton Abbey, uh, the cat would have to be put down. But the the cat is I don't know how much of this is like I Dream of Genie or Bewitched. That kind yes. of uh, magical sitcom. There's a, a definite cheesiness to elements of this episode, although it's it's essentially a spy yeah. thriller episode. There, there's there's some comedy. Well, let's, let's deal with uh, let's deal yeah. with the, the comedy of the cat. Yes, because the yeah. cat sort of is there and about throughout the entire process. It's got a nice silver collar, uh, jeweled collar on it. Yes, and it's always referred to as like so gary seven always sort of says no isis not now mm. warning it off and then in the very last sequence isis turns into a woman yeah only roberta lincoln's character uh, sorry only roberta lincoln the character uh, terry gar's um character actually seems to see isis transform into a, a beautiful woman essentially julie newmar more or uh, less yeah a, a a cat woman type of cat woman <laughs> and then by the time everyone else looks around, she's turned back she's into back a cat. back into a cat, yeah. Well, uh, that's just my cat. Yeah, so there's a joke at, you know, the expense of, of, of Roberta Lincoln. And you wonder if this had been, if this had been spun off into a proper series, whether that would have happened a lot more. Yeah, I, yeah. Would it, would it have, would they have spent a lot of time playing the, oh, are you a cat or are you not a cat? Comedy it might have never been or, mentioned again. Yeah, would it, Roberta yeah. Lincoln would have spent the entire time just thinking that just fucking ha- cat having lost her mind. Yeah. She's just lost her mind in the backdoor pilot. Yeah, and then yeah, um, yeah, and apparently the, I, I mentioned Julie Newmar, but there's a reference to Gary Seven calling uh, ISIS Julie Newmar in in one of the books, in one of the spin-off books. So that's a nice little uh, uh, trivia nugget that I <laughs> well, looked up on the we website. Shall we go all true crime for a moment? Okay. Because people love true crime podcasts. Okay. And we've got a true crime angle here, haven't we? We have. Let's I've, commi- I've committed a crime. Can you solve it? Yeah. I'm, <laughs> d- I'm doing one now on this podcast. <laughs> this podcast could end up feeling like a true crime, mm. the level of detail we might get into. But the lady who plays the human version of Isis the cat. Not the cat. Not the cat. We don't know about the crimes that the cat may or may not have committed, and mm. we can't comment on that. We'll that's, wait for the files to be released next right. year. What um, about Vic, this actress, Vic, Victoria Vetri? Yeah, that was it. Was troubling, and I, I, I wasn't sure whether you'd bring it up. I only found this out this morning we love when, true crime. This when I was when I was reading about many this. Podcasts. Um, but she, in amongst being uh, Playboy Playmate of the Year, nineteen sixty-eight, uh, so the, the year that this episode came out, she also apparently and allegedly, I suppose we must say, um, for probably legal reasons, uh, allegedly mm. killed her, uh, murdered her husband. Um, and is, as far as I'm aware, still incarcerated for that, for that crime. Yes, indeed. Mm. Uh, you can. Have I spoiled the true crime angle? Is that no? That's, no. that's exactly it. That's okay. about as much true crime as we need. So that's that's the cat business, which is just strange. And even when Gary Seven is up a gantry three hundred foot up, 
um, sabotaging a rocket, the cat's there with him. Yes, um, and apparently, according to an interview with Robert Lansing, um, a lot of the lines of dialogue dealing with the cat were were ad libbed. Uh, they had a he he claims there were three cats uh, in filming, uh, and uh, one of them particularly liked him, so would climb on him, and he would just ad lib lines. Uh, so well, I mean, imagine there you go. Imagine imagine a whole series of of that. I think <laughs> never worked with children and animals. Yeah, yes. Yeah, well, they, yeah, that's the the one thing that they didn't have in this backdoor pilot is any any, any horrible kids. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So we've got Gary Seven. He's been intercepted by the Enterprise. The Enterprise don't know what to do with him. They finally managed to get him into the brig, basically behind one of those wibbly wobbly force field screens. That's right. And uh, McCoy is called to examine him. This is about the only thing he does in this episode. Mm, yeah, very small I, role. I've yeah, made yeah. a note here. Did you notice in the doctor's room? And I don't know about the. Various backdrops and prop dressing of the of the surgery. I think I know what he's you're going to say. He's got stuffed animals all up on shelves behind him. He's, he's a doctor. He's a man of science. He's bones. He's, he he's, is. Bones. He is bones. That's yeah. He's bones. So he has bones and and taxidermy. <laughs> Taxi. It's like you go into the doctor's. It's like going into your doctor's because you've got yeah. a cold or you need to get a repeat prescription for something. And you go in and he's got he's nailed a dead koala to the wall. Yeah, for science. Okay. And and the healing properties. Fair enough. Oh, well, yeah, I'm sure. Um, yeah, it's it's basically Norman Bates, isn't it? There's a there's a Norman Bates in this. I've I've always I've always sort of thought it was it was bones for bones. That that was bones yeah. for bones. Yeah, bones for for the character of bones, and 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 then the other one, the other brilliant set dressing is for Spock. You don't see it in this episode, but whenever you see Spock's quarters, he has this um, this meditation uh, statue uh, that looks like a bear. Uh, but because of the the way that the sets are lit, um, my friend and I, when we used to watch these back, we always used to call it Disco Bear. Disco Bear. Disco Bear. So it's, um, yeah. Floor yeah. to the floor, Disco Bear. For floor to floor. Floor to, to the floor. Floor to the floor. I'm referring to the four strong beats of the disco beat, with an emphasis on the first beat very often simply to drive the rhythm along. I see. That's, uh, I, I don't know. Often with Jerry an offbeat, seven. say, hi-hat to uh, give it a bit of kick. Anyway, let's not talk about that. Disco bear. Disco bear. I like that. Well, let's stick with Spock, though. I okay. know we're jumping around. It's very hard to do this in a linear way because there's so much to talk about. But let's stick with Spock. And Spock has to be beamed down to Earth in 1968. How does he disguise himself? Well, uh, he puts he, on a suit. He, yeah, he puts on a suit and a hat. He has two amazing hats in this episode. Does he have? Oh, I didn't notice the suit. There's, there's a beanie hat. Well, it's not a... Well, not a beanie hat. It's, like it's, a, it's like it's a, a Russian a... fur trapper's hat, the first one he wears. Is it? Oh, yeah. I didn't notice that. Or, or and you know, just got an a, advanced just a, tea cosy. Yeah, a standard... Standard uh, issue cap. Starfleet tea cosy. Yeah. Um, oh, I didn't I didn't notice that. Maybe it was a triple. <laughs> Possibly. Um, it wasn't far off. Uh, yeah, so, well... Spot- and the second one is, when they go down again later to the rocket base, he's wearing, like, a fisherman's hat. That's the one I'm like thinking of. Like a floppy of. rim... Oh, fisherman's hat. I've maybe just. I've completely not. I wasn't focusing on Spock's hat. Version where they've where they've CGI'd in new hats. Yeah, just like one. Like yeah. Well, I think more for like continuity purposes. (laughs) They just maybe just put a a different hat on him. But but yeah. When you're saying about uh, Spock's in disguise, which they they did even a few times, haven't they? Yeah, there's there's a couple of episodes I think even in that season where they went to more or less contemporary Earth because you know budget. 
Uh, but yeah, Roberta Lincoln at one point um, pulls his hat off. Um, pulls his hat off. Pulls his hat off. Very Yorkshire. She, there, pull, she pulls his hat off and um, and sees that he is a Vulcan. Yes, and yet he never Vulcan nerve pinches her, does he? No, but he does try again non-linear. He does try to uh, nerve pinch Gary Seven at the start of the episode, take, it? and it doesn't work. It's only Kirk firing a, uh, a, a phaser that stops him. Yes. While we're talking about weaponry. And devices. Yes. Let's talk about the fact that this is 1968. I'm going to drag this back to the UK. Doctor Who. I know exactly what you're going to say. Yes. Now, you and I are both big Doctor Who fans as well. Yes. By 1968, the sonic screwdriver has appeared a couple of times with Patrick Troughton. Mm-hmm. And obviously it would go on to be a major part of... of more and s- more. The yeah, stories yeah. until Peter Davison loses it and it comes back and all this, that and the other. Gary Seven has a super advanced magic ballpoint pen yeah, with I've, little things that come out of it. I've called it, in my notes, the Bliss Ray. Well, it shoots a Bliss Ray, amongst other things, doesn't it? He does use it like a sonic screwdriver to open doors and um, various... It's got functions, many, many functions. It does have a name, and I have I, written it down. It's, it starts with an S. It's a, a something. It's just like a... It quite, sounds quite functional... Name, but behind. his main way he uses it is he uses it to neutralize the prison force field to start with. He does, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he gets out of his pocket. No one's searched him, they've put him in the brig, they've not actually checked yeah. to see where he's carrying it, again. Anything. This is why red shirts are, are the lowest paid members of the and uh, the first person that he that <laughs> the guard, the red shirt guard who's gardening him, looks like a short Chris Hemsworth. That's yeah, okay, yeah, I get that. Yeah, and Gary Seven gets out of his cell, zaps. Short Chris Hemsworth with the magical ballpoint pen. Yes. The results of this ray, which you called the Bliss Ray. I call it Bliss Ray. I just said he he collapses into an orgasmic collapse. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a dirtier way of looking at it. But we do see the effect a few times, and especially there's a particularly orgasmic um, uh, look on the security guard at McKinley Air Force Base, uh, who's, who's a very stern-faced man who then suddenly, instantly becomes very, almost goofy. With yeah, them. I think they're possibly aiming to the idea that it like, makes you instantly like you've had too much to drink or something like that. Yeah, the, the there's an element of, of... joy on their faces. Yeah, there's an element of open to suggestion as well because he does kind of walk the guard over and tells him to sit down and, 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 and go hypnoti- to sleep. It's, yeah, it's like a hypnotic thing, hypnotic suggestion. Yeah. So, yeah, whereas the sonic screwdriver was sort of put to uses such as occasionally using it to undo screws, but mainly to just do whatever the plot needed to get the character moving out of a locked room or this, that and the other. The magical ballpoint pen has this (laughs) power of instant satisfaction, (laughs) shall we say. Something that Doctor Who never used the sonic screwdriver for, to the best of mind. Yeah, that we know know of. Um... Yeah, so we've got we've so, got yeah. Gary Gary Seven. We've got he's he's Supervisor One Nine Four, code name Gary. So Gary Seven is established as a code name mm-hmm. uh, in the episode. So we don't know his real name or why he's called Gary Seven. Maybe it's just like a, a you know a dynasty thing because if he's on a planet and he's been bred selectively from limited stock, <laughs> I don't possibly know, uh, icky. Um, then he might they might just kept calling him Gary because they might not have. Uh, be very imaginative. So he's got a cat called Isis, which is also uh, his, his, his partner. 
Mm. As in his, 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 his well, agent business yeah. partner, not not like his sexual partner. I mean, I can understand. We, we, get, we get that there is some about, tension between them, I think. About sort of retroactively fitting things together. I mean, a cat, if you could disguise yourself as a cat, and generally that's quite innocuous. People are well disposed by and large to cats. They're quite slinky. They can get into different spaces. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... it's it would be weirder if if he was walking around with a python. Yeah, but there is there is a, a point a where he 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 materializes at McKinley Air Base um holding a cat and people walk past him, you know, like personnel there, security personnel and they they don't I don't know if in the 60s people were just walking around with cats a lot, but I saw a woman walking a cat 2 weeks ago in Waterloo mm-hmm. in Merseyside Waterloo and you know, I did a double take. It's what? not. It's not. It's not that common still to see people walking a cat. No, it's in whatever very, year this I'd say is, it's very rare. In fact, yeah, it's it is, and and so it's interesting that you know that I don't know what Roddenberry did with cats, what he thought of cats, but the, it seems like this idea of Gary Seven just walking around with a cat all the time, and presumably that would have happened more and more if a series had gone to. If a cat turns into a lady, mm. does it eat cat food? Only as a oh, cat, that's, does that's... it eat human food as a lady or as a cat? Now, th- yeah, these are very interesting these questions. Are important points for, that... for any kind of anthropomorphic character. But yeah, she she's there's a lot of questions about ISIS, and there are no answers. <laughs> there's a quote that could be taken out of context <laughs> and used in any news. <laughs> sorry, program. sorry, yeah, so, yeah, about about yeah the uh, uh, the the cat woman, uh, not cat woman. So yeah. <laughs> But Gary Seven goes to this office where uh, um, Terry Gar's character works with these two missing agents who then, despite being super beings bred on this magical planet and sent there, have died in a car crash. Yeah, um, and that... Rather prosaic sort of end. Yeah, and it's... I don't know, there's something quite... Uh, not nice about that, but I think it's quite interesting that these, these very advanced humans bred by aliens just come to a sticky end because of, you know, uh, chance. Very, very yeah, day-to-day. Ran, yeah, yeah, day-to-day. And, and I think that Robert Lansing does acknowledge it and sort of says, the character Gary Seven sort of says, what a, you know, it's basically... Wah, wah. <laughs> 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 it's basically, what a way to go of all the things, you yeah, know, yeah, all yeah, this yeah. that we've set up. An and the main thing that they have set up is a computer the size of a caravan yeah, inside um, this office, I, I wrote down as a safe to yeah. start with. Well, no, no, and the no. So this the vault. So Gary Seven's apartment. We should mention okay, this. So on. Gary Seven's apartment is also his office. Uh-huh. So there's no bed in there that we see. Uh, what we see initially is there's, there, there are two rooms. There's this um, secretary's bit with a desk with a little green cube on it yeah. that it, that ties into the computer. Uh, there, and then there's a, a, another room which has his office, uh, very tastefully appointed, uh, very sort of contemporary uh, at that point. Uh, but there is a bank vault door which seems to be used for beaming. So that's like his his technology, his beaming technology. And then there's also uh, a hidden uh, computer called Beta 5. And I think I'm right in saying that Beta 5 was also voiced by Victoria Vetri, who, who was the Isis the Cat. Right, okay. In human form. Well, I think that's right, I'm not sure. My note about the computer, other than it's being massive, is that when he first gets there, the computer doesn't recognise him. And so he has that's to sort right, of do yeah. a voice override Lots thing. of exposition. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so the excuse is, she says, explain your mission. Mm. The computer says, explain your mission. So he does. And the computer goes, incomplete. 
but sufficient. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's using judgment. It's, uh, it's that's weird sort of like. It, yeah, you're still all right then. Yeah, you just scrape by. It's incomplete, but sufficient. Yeah, but the, that, there is, I think I've said this before, there's a lot of exposition in this episode, and that, that's one of the points where the computer provides some, he provides some, then, uh, you know, every time an, a, a new character is introduced, there's there's more sort of quite heavy-handed, in some cases, exposition to to put across, you know, who this character is. Because, it, it, on you know, on paper, as we said, it's a pretty weird, I don't know if it's high concept, but it's... It's a pretty weird, wacky I think concept. Doctor Who has a lot of influence on this episode. Yeah. Basically, what you what they're trying to do is set up a story where a mysterious, <coughs> excuse me, a mysterious traveller from another planet, mm. albeit a human, mm-hmm. with a youthful sidekick, with a youthful sidekick, and and a device and a magical <laughs> pocket device, has to do a thing, investigate, get involved in stories. Yeah. Now, obviously, by 1968, Doctor Who, I think, is probably. St- Started a little bit in America. So I don't think it kicked in really until the late seventies. But it was probably enough of a success as a story, as a concept, that that was influential. And I'm sure we could never find any evidence mm. to back this up. But the coincidences are too much here. I reckon they should have got Ed McBain in to write it. <laughs> Made you know, it a bit grittier. Yeah, the the bank vault, for instance, is, is really incongruous. Um, in the apartment setting, but then even as like a transporter, it's just a port. You don't need the the bank vault there. It no. just seems like unnecessary set dressing. Um, yeah, it's it's a funny one. And, and Beta Five, the computer is is sort of characterised as, as being this sort of snippy, superior um, female voice. So Gary Seven's surrounded by um, female cast members, um, which would be great if it passed the Bechdel test, which it doesn't. Oh. Because uh, Isis the cat in human form never speaks, and Beta Five I don't think ever speaks to Roberta. Um, what's she called? Roberta Lincoln. Or they never have a conversation anyway. We don't get into the portrayal of women in early science. It's just, <laughs> that's a whole other series of podcasts, yeah, and we are sure. probably not the right people to to deal with that. There's a lot of reference to an other major power. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which clearly just means Russia. Well, yeah, it's Cold War era, isn't it? Um, uh, And, well, we assume, if if we assume that the Star Trek universe is is our universe, which obviously it isn't exactly because the eugenics wars and and so on in the 90s. There's this whole thing about whether Roberta Lincoln will quit. She keeps trying to quit all the way through and it's kind of played for laughs and then she doesn't ultimately quit and she, she ends up she doesn't really know why she's staying, though, but she, she sort of falls in with having tried to stop Gary Seven, thinking he's mysterious. That's right. She ends yeah. up falling in with him when he's threatened by, or seems to be threatened by Spock and, and uh, uh, Kirk. Kirk, yeah. Oh, the rest of the Star Trek crew have such a bad time in this episode. Well, probably a good time, because I bet they were getting paid for a whole episode, and then they only turned up for a day's filming, because, like, Uhuru has one line or something like that. Yeah, and Scotty um, Scotty basically gets to stand next to some stock footage of a of, of from NASA. Yes. Uh, and 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 keep turning a But relatively an speaking he, he he has more to he do, has more to do yeah, than yeah. put together. Um not none of the Star Trek characters I would say in this episode really has much agency in the plot no. as a you know they they ultimately it comes down to Kirk and Spock well, Kirk's kind of paralysed at one point. He, he he can't really act at all. And it mm. does come down to Gary Seven saving the day uh, and whether Kirk and Spock can trust 
him. Yeah, I've just I've just uh, noticed as well. Just on one more on Roberta Lincoln. Um, she was she thought the reason what the, the job that she thought she was doing was research for a new encyclopedia. Oh yes, yeah, that's, that was, that, it, that was a bit a little bit of back. So she does have a little bit of backstory, but she mostly doesn't know who she is, where she's going, or or really anything. Um, even though she's referred to as being. Uh, having a high IQ despite some erratic behaviour. And actually, she's introduced uh, in a classic kind of, oh, this is a clumsy female character kind of way because she does that funny thing. She does, she's trying to get away with being late. Yes, and she so she, she walks uh, left and then right and then left and then right in, in front of another person and they move right and then left and right and then left correspondingly. And I can't remember what that's called. There's a thing for it. Dancing. Dancing. Um, but yeah, uh, so so she's an odd, she's an odd character. She's probably the most ordinary character out of Gary Seven, the magic cat, well, she's and, our, and she's the secretary. Human way in, isn't she? Yeah, she is, and she, like you said, with the sort of analog of um, of Doctor Who, she'd be the the youthful voice of of the youth. But uh, Beta Five, the computer, which she experiences in the form of, I th- I'm I'm assuming that the magical voice activated typewriter is also part of Beta Five. As is the green cube on the desk. Yeah, he ties like he ties he ties the green cube in. He says tie into computer. Yeah, so it must it have becomes, some other function. And it as well. becomes like like Alexa or a home. Yeah, yeah, thing. It's for, yeah. Actually, that's a really good. Except thing. it looks much cooler than any of those things that actually exist now. because yeah. it's a cool looking well, green it, cube. It's like a mini Marvel Tesseract. I prefer from to the think Marvel of it Wars. as a mini green Energon cube. Yeah, it's it, there's a lot of energy cube things in sci-fi, aren't there, isn't there? and fantasy. Yeah. So uh, there's a whole... I mentioned the Prime Directive earlier, non-interference. Uh, Prime Directive clearly broken um, uh, at least once in this episode, probably more. That could be a whole drinking game. The Prime Directive is broken when two Earth policemen are beamed up with <laughs> Kirk and Spock. And presume- My favourite line in the, in the show is, happens at that point. And what what is that? Well, when they come to on the transport pad in on the Enterprise, one of them goes, "Golly," and then they get transported away again. Yeah, it it's completely without any consequence at all. And I, I was thinking, well, if, if assignment Earth or whatever it would have been called had gone to series, would they have kept turning up and sort of seeing little Gary Seven things like weird, weird sci fi stuff? Or they could have um, their own spin off themselves. <laughs> you could it just keep been, Roddenberry was just setting up characters just to be able to spin them off to, in as many series as possible. Who, after years of service, slowly collapse into a mental decline due to an yeah. They see they see one one time they get beamed up and they just can't make sense basically of basically just their therapy sessions for yeah. uh, sixteen episodes a season. That 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 I, I'd watch that. I know you would. <laughs> It says Star Trek at the front of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so the, the Prime Directive clearly broken then because they get to see the inside of a 23rd century starship. Gary Seven basically has to sabotage a, a United States... I mean, that in actually, in terms of patriotism in the US, that's quite a daring, maybe quite a daring storyline for 1968. That mm. Gary Seven, who's actually working for the... Uh, the greater good. The greater good, yeah. It's, it's, it's a classic kind of greater good story, actually. Uh, the greater good has to um, cause a rocket to malfunction so that it does not cause the Third World it's, War. I think it's sort of tipping point, isn't it? It's yeah. So if this rocket goes up and joins, delivers its payload into the atmosphere of another nuclear bomb, mm-hmm. then that's the tipping point where... Yeah, like a point of no return. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So yeah. he needs to get it to blow up. 
Yes. But not let anyone think it was. And presumably then. Else doing it. Make, yeah, it, make people think it's a yeah, malfunction. Know that it's a malfunction so that they say, oh, well, actually, hang on a minute. Yeah, it's, it's best not to have loads of nuclear weapons in, in sub orbit because that's really dangerous. <laughs> um, which <laughs> obviously. If we uh, send someone to space, we're going to be yeah, dodging, yeah, dodging nuclear missiles. Dodging lots of, yeah, yeah. So obviously, someone saw this episode and thought, hang on, they're onto something. Because, mm, you know, we, we don't, do we? I've written in big letters here, Paul, man with cat absurdity. And, and obviously I mentioned I Dream of Genie and Bewitched um, before, but there is there is something very sort of 60s about this Gary Seven setup. And it, almost if you stripped the cat, not stripped the cat, but <laughs> if you stripped the cat out of this story, it, it's a lot more streamlined. Yes. Immediately. and and But it seems like a really kind of goofy hook that's very, that would have been kind of, I don't know the air dates for Bewitched and I Dream of Genie and those kind of magic shows. Must but be fairly contemporary. Yeah, um, so I'm thinking that that was kind of thrown in as a sort of nod to oh, well, magic yeah, magical or, character. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. But Robert Lansing himself, as an actor, he's brilliant. I, I love him as Steve Carella. As listeners to this will know, in the Eight Seventh Precinct series, he's got a real carries himself really well. And I've shown you an episode of the Eight Seventh today, Precinct. and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's very good. That's a very Carella heavy was, one. What was that episode called? It was called The Very Hard Cell, the very hard and cell it featured thing. a very young Leonard Nimoy. It did. It as did. The, as the villain of the piece. Yes. And no pointy ears and hats in that scenario, but a very nice skinny tie and a handy line. I think he did. He around. wore a trilby at one point. He did wear hats. Yes. Yeah, but he was pushing heroin for innocuous looking grocers, apparently. Yeah, health food shops have really come a long way. Yeah, from selling <laughs> steaks, cigarettes, and heroin. And heroin. <laughs> Yeah, not to be trusted. But Robert Lansing, um, I think Robert Lansing has the gravitas to carry it off, but he's also got enough of a... I don't want to say a twinkle, because that's always a bit cheeky. It's what makes him sound a bit like a Patrick No, he, he, he plays it straight. A, yeah, I think he does play it straight. He's got a very engaging presence on screen, and he would have been a great leading man. Yeah. And I think he was up for doing the series. He would have been quite happy for it to go to series. Because apparently Roddenberry wrote it for him. They were friends, and he was he, he described himself in an interview as saying, oh, I was a like a slightly snobbish New York actor, and I'd just gone out to Hollywood to do a couple of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're going to do a backdoor pilot, it sounds as though he'd have, have returned for, for whatever the series would have, would have been. Um, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? If you think about that series, would it have been Assignment Earth and each episode would have been on Earth or or would Roddenberry have kind of pushed the format to being more of a Doctor Who, you know, open-ended thing because they did have this transporter so they could do episodes set elsewhere but um, in, a, in the, the Star Trek well, universe, essentially, but in the 20th in, century. In Doctor Who, where they start to bring Doctor Who to Earth and, yeah, and, and yeah. put him there as as a way of grounding the stories in the unit stuff with John Pertwee. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. We're we'll talking yes, about that. Else. Anyway, have you got any other major points to make here? I'd like to make the point that everyone should watch Assignment Earth and imagine their own spin-off series from it. Yeah, um, I think there's an amazing bit where Scotty is basically used as a sat-nav um, oh, yes. because <laughs> Kirk and Spock need to find Gary Seven's apartment and... Um, and Scotty says uh, it's like thirty meters. Yeah, it's it's where you are, but thirty meters up. So obviously it's in it's in yeah. the building. And then there, he's even like uh, room to room. He's pointing them in exactly the right direction. Exactly. It's, it's oh. funny that there's a manhunt when they 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 seem completely useless in this episode. It's this thing from a modern perspective where now like having a map in your pocket down to mm. in fact inside buildings in some cases that level of detail. That for all the things they can imagine, the big stuff, the spaceships, the transporters, um, even the philosophies of the future, they don't often imagine 
the day-to-day things mm. that we actually have ended up have ended up taking for granted, like having a sat nav in our pocket on our phone, or well, even even a mobile phone. They've got the communicators, which is their equivalent. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's strange because they could have just had like one scene where um, they work out to read um, to to look in like a yellow pages. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's you know, it's, it is fascinating and. It is full of also lovely stock footage of NASA from the time as well. <laughs> it certainly is. If you're if you're in a fan of NASA stock footage, then this is for you. Yes, certainly. There's lots of uh, cutaways to control rooms and rockets, and they're matched by sets with gantries and things like that. So Gary Seven's up. I reckon it was probably a Saturn V rocket. I'm sure someone will tell me it's not. Which was Saturn Vs were the ones used to launch the Apollo uh, missions. So well, it'd be the same. It'd have been up about three hundred and sixty foot on that gantry doing that stuff, and there was no, there was no crosswind. There was, there was no, no crosswind, crosswind whatsoever, no crosswind. and the cat was there with him. Yeah, there's a cat scratching his back. Um, yeah, so uh, you asked me about one more thing, um, I, uh, Columbo. Um, uh, oh, apparently, there's going to be a Columbo okay, side okay. at some there's point. A, there's a there's a uh, in terms of spin-offs, I looked up. There apparently there were some. There's been some DC. Uh, comic that's mentioned Gary Seven IDW released a, a John Byrne assignment Earth comic um, and Greg Cox has also um, uh, released three books featuring uh, Gary Seven and and the other characters from Assignment Earth uh, so Assignment Eternity in which Gary Seven travels to uh, the twenty third century and stops Spock from getting assassinated. Um, so a little bit of almost a reversal of this plot mm. in, in the sense that he, he travels. I mean, it doesn't expressly say that he can or can't time travel in, well, in Assignment the Enterprise Earth. is hopping around like no one's yeah, yeah. business. If, if they're an advanced alien race, apparently time travel's quite easy. Um, and then a two-part um, book, The Eugenics Wars, The Rise and Fall of uh, Khan, Noonien Singh. So that's Khan from uh, The Wrath of Khan, Khan and Space Seed and, and more recently Star Trek Into Darkness. So yeah, uh, so he has come back up in in some of the like wider Star Trek media, but always as a uh, apart from with the John Byrne stuff, where it's about assignment Earth. Uh, everything else has always been like framed with a Star Trek uh, backdrop framing device. It's clearly whatever. caught people's imaginations, and I think that's in no part due to Robert Lansing's portrayal of Gary Seven because he's such an interesting actor to watch. Yeah, and I think interestingly, from my point of view, having seen this. Episode and um, from my point of view, it's it, it not one of my favourite Star Trek episodes. Uh, it's not something I've rewatched a lot because I, I I find it kind of dull, mm. slightly dull. Um, it's a weird way to end a series, and it's it? a very weird way. If it had been the last episode, I think it would have been really like a strange episode to end with. But um, yeah, he he's very good in it, and and watching sixty uh, eighth precinct. 87th Precinct. Six, so 80, 87, 87, 87, not 68th. No, 68 was a year. That's a spin-off. <laughs> right. Well, there was a 80, 87th, yeah, sorry, it was 1968. Sorry, yeah, yeah, 87th Precinct. Uh, the, the show, uh, yeah, as an actor, you get you get his uh, sense of kind of charisma, but for this kind of hard-boiled personality that he has. And, and you pointed out that whenever he's in disguise, he just smiles yes, because the rest of the it. time he's very that's kind of Corella rugged goes, and goes yeah. off grid just by smiling. Yeah, he's he's stolid. Is that? Would that uh, be? Yeah, I'll go with that. That's a, that's a good. Um, he's not stoic. He's he's stolid. No, I don't know I that Corella's stoic ever as a character particularly. Stoicism's more in the Maya Maya line. Yeah. Anyway, right. What I'll do to conclude here is I'm going to ask you a couple of questions okay. that you've not been 
given in advance. Oh, wonderful. amazing. Okay. okay, shoot. So these are McBain-based questions. Oh, and obviously, no. there's not general knowledge about McBain. Okay. Not what? Well, I just, I just, I just got the, I just got the name of the the, the book series wrong. Yeah, so. that's tick. <laughs> um, so McBain had a run of single word book titles like Ice, Lightning, and Bread. Okay, be snappy titles. Yeah. Can you give me a single word off the top of your head that could be used as the title of a crime novel? I know that Poison was one. So it does was. that count? No, you can't have Poison because that is one. Oh, okay. Um, oh. Man, that's that's harder. You know, you you always think that's so easy when you see. Stop stalling! I can't. I'm stalling for time. I'm just looking around the room now. <laughs> dart, dart board. Is that one word or two? Uh, dart board. Darts. Darts. Dart. That dart. Single dart. Dart. Because that could mean running. It could mean darting from place the, to place. The ability of mcbain to layer up even a single word title is one of his skills you see so we can go with dart all i could see was febreze <laughs> are you letting people know how bad my house smells now no it smells good it smells of febreze that's the trick second question who are best baddies or goodies uh, goodies thank you that's the right answer that's not necessarily the right answer but that's what i believe and um, if you were a stool pigeon what would your nickname be um, speckles. Speckles? Mm. And what would be your uh, preferred place to meet? Uh, a, a rooftop loft. Like a pigeon loft? Yeah, a pigeon loft. Okay. Is there many of them in uh, Waterloo, Merseyside? Yes. Good. Is that it? That's it for the questions. Okay. Um, is there anything else that we haven't covered? That, oh, probably. In terms of, like, uh, uh, we've talked about Lansing. Uh, what, I mean, what... So you said that the only real connection is is Lansing. Yeah, that's the only okay. that's the only connection between the eighty seventh precinct slash Ed McBain and Star Trek that I can find, other than the fact that Leonard Nimoy was in an episode of the eighty seventh precinct TV series, yeah. and it was an episode that McBain himself didn't write, it wasn't yeah. even based on one of the books. They're huge. Both things, the eighty seventh precinct, less thought of so much now. But that and Star Trek both had huge impact on the cultural landscape in terms of the types of things people made. So science fiction stories, police stories. Mm. There's something quite archetypal, like just seeing that one episode, and I haven't read any of the Ed McBain books, um, but there's something quite archetypal about the the police procedural setup of that show. And I I said to you while we were watching it, you know, even Police Squad as a parody of that, that style, of that very sort of, not deadpan, um, delivery. It's it's just it's just straight delivery, isn't it? If it's drama, but yeah, there's something quite archetypal about that, and I suppose there's something that's that's fairly archetypal in terms of sci-fi storytelling with Star Trek now. Yes, um, especially when you consider things like the Orville, which are you know parodying um, the very sort of '90s, uh, 2000s um, versions of Star Trek, the later iterations. And, and you know, Star Trek wasn't the first thing to do it. It was, it was things like uh, Forbidden Planet um, and other movies, but it's had that sort of enduring appeal, hasn't it? It's the um, serialised nature of it, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The sort of almost short story aspect of, a, of an hour of television. Yeah, and, and the, the, the simplicity, um, and then also later the you know complexity of the characters, but initially the, the such a simple setup with each character, they're so clearly defined. And I think that's something to be said for... For the what would be the Assignment Earth uh, spin-off is that we don't really get a sense of who Gary Seven is, other than he comes in and he does his job. We we we'd maybe get more backstory, you know, with this mysterious alien thing, 
Um, we don't get a good sense of like who Isis the cat or Isis the human cat woman, not cat woman, uh, is. And we also don't get a great sense of like who Roberta Lincoln is beyond like slightly ditzy but highly intelligent, not got a lot of um, sort of clear drive in the episode. Yeah. So it's, there's a lot of... I, I think what I'm trying to say is there's this weird sort of polar thing of the episode is deliberately mysterious and or intriguing is a better word. Deliberately intriguing because they wanted obviously people to tune in when yeah. this when this show was made and it obviously wasn't. But then also deliberately mysterious to give them some latitude to flesh it out. Not, none of those characters necessarily have a very strong motivation other than the plot based uh, episodic uh, nature of this this particular adventure. Okay, well, in in conclusion, then. How many Star Trek badges would you award it out of 100? Um, 43. 43 out of 100. Yeah, that's one more than the Douglas Adams meaning of life, isn't it? So, 42. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so the, it, it concludes with, um, with, with Spock and Kirk uh, basically uh, almost sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink to camera saying, um, I think they've got a lot of interesting experiences in store for them. And, and Kirk saying, yeah, I, I think you're right. That's that's that sends them off on their adventures. Although it does imply that they've looked into some data tracks and found out what their adventures are in the future. Yeah, it does seem to imply that. Yeah, <laughs> it clearly doesn't cover his tracks very well. There you go. Right, I think we're going to conclude so, there. Then you got a data. You, you're going to be good with your data, Mr. Adam Paxman. Thank you for joining me, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure and a delight. Good o. Goodbye, everyone. Bye bye.